are back in the book of Mark, and we are going to be finishing Mark chapter 11, going into chapter 12 today, and just to bring you back up to speed, get our minds back in gear for the book of Mark, trying to understand what this word is really saying to us, Mark is trying to answer two questions, all right? If you get this, you're really going to have a, a pretty good uh, picture of the layout of the book of Mark. He's trying to answer two questions. One, who, who is Jesus? Who is this guy, Jesus? And then two, what does it mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to follow him? And Mark has already given us his claim. He's told us what he thinks about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, he said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's been spending the rest of the book trying to prove that to you and give you evidence to believe. He really is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the King. In fact, we, we saw halfway through in, in chapter 8, Peter actually came out and just confessed that. He said, you are the Christ. And from that point on, for the rest of the book, Jesus is on his way to the cross to help us understand what that meant to be the Christ and the Son of God and what it means for us to follow him. So this book is really all about discipleship, okay? And uh, this week, I saw a license plate and and it's, it's not something that I saw for the first time. You've probably seen it as well. It's one of the Virginia license plates. I just noticed it. It had, a, uh, it had an American flag, and it had this phrase at the top of the license plate that said, in God we, you know what? Yeah. In God we trust. And, and when you see somebody that has that, you realize they, like, they had to pick that. And so that person is making a statement. They're, in, in one sense, they're making a claim to submit to God as the authority, and recognizing their need for him. I think that phrase, in God we trust, um, could have pretty much summed up the life of Adam and Eve when they were living in the Garden of Eden before sin ever entered into the picture. I mean, think about it. It was like it was a perfect world, and, and they really did. They had this trust in their relationship with God. They loved him. They obeyed him. They, they, they submitted to him. I mean, they, they knew he's the creator. He made us, and so he's our authority. We have no problem submitting to that. And they enjoyed his presence and the relationship they had with him. They could genuinely say, in God we trust. But in Genesis chapter 3, they were faced with this temptation to erase God from that confession. And so instead of saying, in, in God we trust, in that moment they started to really doubt his character. Like, can, can we really trust him? Is he trustworthy? And, 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 and is he really good? Are his ways really best? And in that moment they determined that they themselves could decide what was best and they rejected his rule, his reign over their lives and they plunged the world into rebellion. And the history of the world is really the story of, of men and women. It's, it's us. It's our story. Essentially, taking out our pencils, flipping them over, and trying to erase God from our lives as the one in whom we really need to trust as our authority and the only one who can save us. We try to erase God and then fill in that blank with pretty much anything else but Him. And today we're looking at um, the obvious bad guys in the New Testament. Nobody wants to be like the 
religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. I mean, obviously, these guys are trying to erase God's rule, but I want you to just remember that uh, the same sin that we're going to see in them as we look at this, the same sin that would cause them to reject Jesus Christ is the same sin that's living in our hearts as well. Okay, so before I read this, let me just give you this big idea if you're taking notes. Note this. Beware of the consequences of erasing God as the one in whom you trust. I really just want to show you today in Scripture that that's not going to work out as well as you think it is in the moment. Okay? Let me show it to you. Uh, Mark chapter 11, I'm starting at verse 27. You follow along with me as I read. And they, Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, I'm going to say this the way they would have said it, okay? By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Kind of ticked off. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, was that from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we want to submit to you. And nobody, I, I'm just pretty confident, nobody in here is going to say that none of us want to admit that um, we're rebelling against you and that we're trying to erase you from our lives. We're here. We, uh, we want to hear from you this morning, and yet maybe there's uh, a little peace my life, that I would prefer to erase you from as the authority, the one who gets to call the shots. And uh, I'm praying that you would show us that we still have uh, fragments of this rebellion that are living inside of our hearts, and, and we're confessing that today, and, and we are coming humbly, recognizing that we need to let you do your work. Maybe you need to do some surgery, and lay open our hearts today and show us where those areas are. Um, would you show us and, and prove to us that you are trustworthy? That we don't have to fear submitting to you. That's not a bad thing. But Lord, our joy comes from submission to you. And so Lord, I just thank you that you've given us your word that we can spend some time opening up together and, and asking you to give us clarity on these things. And I pray that in all of it, you get the glory for this. And If you need to do a work, we're open to that, God, because we want to submit to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so, so this text is, is um, not exactly a fun one, but I think it's necessary for us. I think there's a couple of warnings here. I want to give you two warnings this morning if you're taking notes. Note this. The first warning is that questioning God's authority is dangerous. You know that? Questioning God's authority 
is pretty dangerous. I want you to see how this plays out. Uh, verse 27, we're getting the setting. We just get a reminder, kind of catch us up to speed and where we've been. It says that uh, Jesus and his disciples came again to Jerusalem. Now, I know it's been a couple months since we've been in the book of Mark, but you got to remember that, that Jesus and his disciples had been on a journey, and they just arrived in the city of Jerusalem just a couple of days ago. And do you remember where they first went when they uh, arrived in the city? You remember where they went? They went into the temple, right? And what did they see when they got into the temple? He looks around, he sees all this like business is happening and, and people are selling things and it's kind of a zoo in there and Jesus goes off, right? I mean, he just cleans house. But, but not, just, not just cleansing the temple, really what he was doing in that moment was, was condemning it. He flips over the tables and he condemns the religious system of that day that was failing to be what God designed it to be. Namely, a, a house of prayer for all the nations. They weren't even close. And so Jesus goes into the temple. I'm sure this really made the religious leaders excited. And he uh, kind of makes a scene there. And then he walks out. And he doesn't stay in the city overnight. He actually spends the night uh, outside the city, um, just over uh, the Mount of Olives. And now, uh, this is, just got to think time frame here. This is leading up to the cross. This is the week of the cross. So all of this is happening in a short amount of time. And here he is back, the text says, as he's walking in the temple, here comes the religious leaders, and they've got a question. They're questioning him. Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? Like, like, you knew they'd be ticked off after what Jesus had, had done. They're not really happy with him. And so, so they're questioning Jesus. But this is not questioning like, like they, they're genuinely concerned. They, they, they want to know what Jesus is going to say here. And what Jesus says will determine how they respond to him. No, no, no. They, they've already seen uh, all of the signs that he has done uh, to show that he really has divine authority. And they've heard his claims and they have decided that they are going to reject him. They've already made up their minds. So basically what they're doing when they question him, they're really asking, who gave you the right? And they're hoping that they can kind of put Jesus on trial in the court of public opinion and that these people will see that, that he's not who he says he is and they can kind of take him out that way. So here's the deal. It's one thing to ask questions when you're uh, legit trying to understand something, but to put God on the hot seat and to question the legitimacy of his authority, why, why would you do that? Well, the reason is because you're really motivated by a heart of rebellion. They don't want Jesus to have divine authority because they don't want to submit to him. Now, I know it's kind of hard for us to see sometimes, um, but we have some authority issues with God sometimes too, don't we? We see the same uh, seed of rebellion in our hearts whenever we start to question or uh, even blame God for our circumstances that we don't like. Like, why, why did you let this happen? And, and I was praying about this, and you could have done, you should have 
done something about this and why? Why are you letting this happen in my life? And, and so what happens in that moment is you start kind of doubting the character of God and the promises of God. You forget all about who He is and what He's already done for you. Instead of being thankful, instead of trusting, we start to run to doubting and thinking about what I want and what I don't have right now. And, and, and we start questioning God's character. And it's really rooted in a heart of, I'm not sure that I can trust Him. And then maybe it goes beyond just myself and my own personal circumstances. And I th- start thinking about injustice all around the world. And then we start assuming that, that God needs to answer to us for the evil that exists in the world. C.S. Lewis said it, it, it's like when man makes himself the judge and puts God on trial. He said it, he, man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reason, a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. What he's trying to highlight is that's kind of an arrogant thing to do, right? Like completely dismissing his his authority and his holiness, no appreciation for that, and no recognition of our own sin. It's the seed of rebellion. Or this happens when we don't really like what we read, and 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 when the uh, the Bible conflicts and and contradicts what's what's culturally acceptable. Like right now, we're having all sorts of. Uh, conversations and people are questioning what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality and and gender roles and and uh, they, you know you want to come to the Bible and you look at it and you're like well it can't it can't mean that right like that's that's just I, I I know what the Bible says but I just don't think God would condemn anybody and that just doesn't seem right and that doesn't seem fair it doesn't sound Love it. You know, you know, it's it's probably that those those things that 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 they wrote to the church, that that was like first century issues, but that's not really what God intended for us today. You see, we just start questioning what the Bible says, challenging its authority, because it's the seed of rebellion. Pretty much any time that we choose sin over God's commands. We're challenging his authority. I don't see why I can't do this. Or, or, or uh, like, who are you? Or, or, or why, I, why I can't? Why, why, I, I don't see why this is wrong. And, and I know you say it's wrong, but why do you get to be the one to determine that? And so, so we start to question because we want to feel justified in erasing God as the authority in our lives. Because, come on, sometimes we just don't want to submit to him. I don't want to do it his way. What I'm trying to say to you is, I think we all have the seed, even if it's just a little. We have a seed of rebellion that exists in all of our hearts. And until we're willing to admit that, we're actually in danger of becoming like these religious leaders who can't see it in themselves. I mean, think about it. They would, they would never have said, like, I, 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 I don't trust God. I'm in rebellion against him. They would never have said that. And I, I praise God that, that most of you, I'm looking around here, I'm pretty confident, uh, most of you are not in outright rebellion against God. You're not. 
Quite frankly, you probably wouldn't be here if you were like, I just don't care what God says. I want nothing to do with him. You wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. So I'm thankful for that. But if, there, if there's even just a little piece of my life that I'm holding back from him, like maybe you're crushing it on your disciplines and you're, you're all in for God. Like, man, I'm, I'm getting up every morning, I'm reading my Bible and I'm going to church and I'm going to small group and I'm, I'm serving. I'm like all in for God, except, except there's one little area over here. And maybe for you it's, it's finances. And you know what God says. When you know what he expects that we would be giving and investing in, in his church and in the mission. You've actually probably in your mind uh, thought about like a good thing, like like I want to be fiscally responsible, and so but you've used that as really an excuse to not do what God has asked you to give and to give generously and to give with a cheerful heart. Holding back. And maybe it's transparency. And you know what God's word says um, about. Genuine. We want to be real people here. We want to be open. But maybe you felt like, you know, I want, to, I want to be able to put my best foot forward, and you've convinced yourself that, like, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. And because you don't want to be a burden to anybody, you're just not going to open up and fail to confess sin and be honest about what's going on in your heart. Maybe you kind of fear that if I do let that out, if I, if I start to uh, give God control of that and let that out, I, I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid of what that might mean for me. See, really, it can be any area of obedience. That, that, that maybe, maybe God has been pricking at your heart for a while on this issue. And if there's a hesitation in you to submit, or if there's any inclination for you to try to maintain a sense of, of control, like, like, like I'll say it when I want to say it, or how far I want it to go, if there's any sense of that, it's, it's questioning his authority. You're not ready to give him complete control. And it's the root of the same sin of rebellion, trying to erase God that we see with these religious leaders right here. And Jesus calls them right out, right? So he asks them a question, uh, verses 29 and 30. He says, okay, let me, let, let me ask you a question. How about the baptism of, of John? Is that from heaven or from man? And, and at first it might seem like that's kind of like a diversion, like, like Jesus just doesn't want to answer the question, but he knows what's going on in their hearts. And so what he's really trying to do is just reveal what's happening. And so uh, I love this. Verse 31 says, uh, they, they began, uh, they discussed it with one another, which is another way of saying they huddled up to start talking their political strategy because they're way more concerned with the optics than the actual issues. They're, they're not getting together. It's, it, I guarantee it wasn't like, hey, okay, guys, he's, he's giving us uh, option A, or option B, which, which do you think it is? And they start to, they're not talking about that. They don't care. They're only concerned with the fallout of their answer. If we say this, what's going to happen? What's going to be the consequences? 
You see, when you're, when you're questioning God's authority because you're hoping to avoid having to submit to him or even try to discredit him so you can justify your rebellion, that's so dangerous because you won't honestly examine the evidence right in front of you. Not once in their discussion are they willing to honestly answer the question, what if it really is from heaven? I, I mean, what? What, what, if it's, what if it's true? I mean, that would have changed everything, right? The reason they don't ask the question and they're not honestly thinking about it is because they don't want it to be true. Remember, John baptized Jesus. And remember what happened when he did. And so if, if John's ministry carried the authority of God, then what does that mean for Jesus and his ministry? So instead of, uh, instead of thinking it through, instead of responding to the evidence of what Jesus has said and what they've seen Jesus do, they just give this cop-out answer in, in verse 33. They say, oh, we, don't, we don't know. Now, come on, tell me. Look at me. Look at me. Do you think it's possible that they had an idea about Jesus' authority? You think? You think maybe they knew after hearing about him casting out demons and healing sick people and, and raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and, and, and feeding thousands of people all at one time and calming storms and, 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 and walking on water. It's like, do, do you think that there might have been anything that might have been a clue for them? Danny Aiken has said it this way, that for so many people, the real problem is not the evidence. The problem is internal. It is us and our sin. And so if you're trying to uh, erase God as the ultimate authority, then don't hide behind some like pseudo-intellectual skepticism. Like, I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, questioning things right now, and, and I don't really know if the Bible's true. I mean, maybe it is. Like, listen, listen. It's one thing to have questions, and that's fine. You should. But if you're asking questions, have the courage and the intellectual honesty to examine the evidence and look for answers. But it's dangerous to question God when your heart already wants to avoid submitting to him because then you uh, easily ignore the truth and, and, and rationalize rejecting his authority and justify erasing him as the one that you need to trust. And... You also uh, get trapped in the fear of man. Look what Mark tells us. He, he gives us a little bit of, of commentary on why they actually refuse to answer. I mean, they're like, well, if, 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 we, say, if we say it's from heaven, we, we don't want to say that uh, because then he's going uh, to have us caught like we should have believed in him. But um, shall we say from man? And then uh, here's Mark's little commentary. They were afraid of the people they all held that John really was a prophet. Now, why are they afraid of the people? Why, why, why are they afraid? Well, it's not because they're like staring at the crowds like this crowd is an angry mob with uh, torches and pitchforks ready to take them out. It's not that. They're afraid of what the people might think about them. They're afraid of what the people might say about them. This happens to me. When I'm afraid to bust a move on a dance floor. Because if I was to do that, um, it would get embarrassing real fast. And, and um, 
Like, I could do that right now, and some of you would have secondhand embarrassment at just the thought of me even trying that. There, I, have, I have discovered that I'm one of those guys that needs, like, very specific instructions, like the cha-cha slide that tells you, slide to the right, slide to the right. I can do that. But if I get off of that a little bit, I try to go off on my own, it, I have plenty of reason to be afraid of you laughing at me and, and making jokes, and, and I have a lot of reason to fear your opinions there. That's the fear of man. You get it? The fear of man is when you're more concerned with the opinions of people than the opinion of God. I'm afraid of what you think, not what he thinks. Ed Welch has written an incredibly helpful book on this subject, and the title of it is this, When when People Are Big and God Is Small. This happens when we make, we make our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, and their opinions about us so big and so important in our minds that it dwarfs God in my mind as, as functionally irrelevant. It doesn't really matter what he thinks, or it doesn't really matter what he says. And what an insult to the authority of God, right? And so, so, so Mark is trying to show us these guys don't fear God. They're more afraid of what the people would think about them than what Jesus thinks. And the fear of man paralyzes them and deceives them. And get this, get this. They, they ignore matters of eternal consequence because they only care about saving face in the moment. Can you say stupid? I mean, look, what we think about Jesus has ramifications for our eternity, but I don't really care about that. I just care about what people are going to say about me tomorrow. They're not willing to wrestle with who Jesus really is because they don't want to be accountable to him if he actually is who he says he is. Now, here's what this means for you and me. Jesus is our authority. It's okay to wrestle with questions. It's okay to have that. But to question and challenge his authority is dangerous. But when you do trust him, you find that it's actually wonderfully freeing to submit to him. You guys discovered that? That that once you stop chafing at all of his commands, you realize his ways really are best. He does know better. And submitting to his authority actually brings joy in my life. Have you discovered that? But these guys didn't. And so I want to show you what happens next. Uh, chapter 12. Let's, let's go on. Jesus is uh, not done with these guys. In chapter 12, we're going to read a story here. Verse 1 uh, says, he began to speak to them in parables. It's story time, okay? A man planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, 
Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But, here it is again, they feared the people. for They perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Here's the second warning for us if you're taking notes. Note this. Rejecting God's son leaves you with no hope. Jesus tells us a parable. He hasn't done that since chapter 4. Mark usually gets us right into the action, but this, this story that Jesus tells is obviously allegorical given the context because this, this man that planted a vineyard and then leased it to t- uh, some tenants, that, that the, the owner of the vineyard, is uh, that's God. And the religious leaders are the tenants that God had entrusted this to them and uh, given them some oversight and asked them to take care of. When he sent a servant to get some of the fruit, what did they do? They beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. I mean, this is kind of shocking, right? You're like, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Like, I have no idea how they thought they were going to get away with this in the first place, but then they do it again. And it just keeps getting worse. The, the, the violence and, and this shameful injustice escalates until they kill a guy. And, and then it just keeps happening. And so, so if, if God is the owner of this vineyard and, and uh, the religious leaders are the tenants, then the servants that the owner sent represent God's prophets that God kept sending uh, to his people, trying to get them to repent, trying to get them to hear him out. But uh, instead of listening, instead of repenting and, and, and submitting to God's authority, they ignored the prophets and they rejected them. They persecuted them and they killed them. And, and when you put it all in a story like that, doesn't it just make you appreciate the patience of God with these guys? He, he, he gives them chance after chance after chance. I mean, okay, just put yourself in, in, in the owner's shoes. Like, what, what, what would you have done if you were the owner after the first time this happened? I mean, you'd, you're fired or worse, right? Like initiating missile launch codes. And, and, and if you're an owner of a vineyard, it means you probably have some money, so you, you probably got people. So I got some people that can take care of this. I'm not just going to send a servant, you know what I'm saying? We're going to take these guys out. Like, I, I can't believe how in-your-face insulting this is. But it makes me wonder, why, why does God have so much patience with rebellious sinners? Do you get that? But he said, verse 6, that the owner had still one other a beloved son. At this point, you're like listening to the story. You're like, no, 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 because you, you can see where this is going, right? And finally, he sent him. So if we're shocked at the appalling actions of 
these tenants, then, then we're even more shocked at this father. Like, why, why would he do this? He can't think that this is going to turn out good. Why is he going to send his son? And, and Jesus doesn't say it's just his son. He, he actually uses the phrase, he's uh, his beloved son. That word is used three times in the book of Mark. The only other times that it's used besides this is to refer to Jesus. Chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, as he's, as he's coming out of the water, a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Then it happened again when he was up on a mountain in Mark chapter 9, at his transfiguration, and as he's transfigured before them and they're seeing his glory, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Jesus is the Son, and the world has never seen a love like this between the Father and his Son. Now, I love my kids. I don't think my love for my kids even comes close to the purity and the perfection of the love of the Father for His Son. And because I love my kids, there's no way I would ever send one of them in, in, into the pack of wolves like this guy. So, 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 so why? why? What would compel the Father to willingly send His beloved Son into the midst of these guys? Why? Because He loves us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loves you that much. Is that staggering? So the, the owner finally sent his son saying, they will respect my son. The son is coming as a representative of his father. He's coming with like, like uh, legal right and all of the authority because when, when he gets there, this, this land, it's going to be his someday. But is anybody shocked at what happens next? How they treat the son? They don't, they don't respect him. I mean, we've already seen they, they fear man more than they fear God. And, and this, is, this is not a mistake. Like they, they killed him and they're like, whoops, we... They didn't realize it was the son. We just thought it was enough. No, they know who it is, don't they? They said, guys, come here. Come on. Look, look, look. The son's coming. This is the heir. Let's get him. If we get rid of him, then this land, it'll be ours. And we don't have to listen to anybody else. We don't have to submit to anybody else's authority. It's ours. We call the shots. We're in charge here. See, this is, this is the ultimate act of erasing God. To kill him so that they could be God. David Garland asked this question Do humans think that by erasing God from their lives, they can take control of their earthly and eternal destinies? Apparently so. This heart of rebellion, at the heart of it, is a disdain for God and his authority. And quite honestly, this stupid belief that we know better than him and that we should be in control. And we want what we want and we don't want anybody to tell us no. 
And so if we can just erase Jesus by, by discrediting him and questioning the, the historicity and the validity of the Bible, like we're not really sure if it's really true, and if it's not really true, then, then we really can't trust it, and we don't have to submit to it there. Or, or by demoting Jesus to just a moral teacher, like he's a good guy, uh, but, but, but not authoritative in that sense. Yeah, you might want to listen to him, you might have some things that you can glean from, but you don't have to make him the Lord of your life. Or, or you can just minimize him as, as an unnecessary option. Like, if that's your thing, great. You know, if you want to follow Jesus, that's okay for you, but I don't think I have to. Or dismissing him altogether as an an irrational crutch for the weak. Those who aren't strong enough and can't think for themselves, then they would trust in Jesus. Or, uh, one of our favorites, is, is by flirting with this idea that maybe God is really more of a tyrant that just demands obedience, but he's not actually interested in what's best for us. And if we can think that way, then we can justify in our minds that that propping ourselves up as the authority and doing what we want to do is actually right. It's the heart of rebellion, isn't it? And I think we need to be careful because obviously we look at at these guys and um, we want to distance ourselves from the religious leaders, like we would never um, treat Jesus that way. But the reality is that anytime we choose sin over Christ, we are proving again we are part of the rebellion. But that's why Jesus came. Mark's already told us that. Chapter 10, verse 45. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to what? To give his life as a ransom for many. He knew he was coming to die. And he told him that. Before we, before we go into Jerusalem, chapter 10, he said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. I think it's significant that Mark is helping us understand it wasn't just the Jews that killed him. Mark says they handed him over also to the Gentiles. It's the Jews, it's the Gentiles, it's all of us. It's our rebellion. It's because of me. Jesus is on the cross because of my sin. And so while each of us played a part in killing Christ, I I do think that it's Important for us to remember that ultimately it was God who killed him. Isaiah tells us that it was the will of the Father, the will of the Lord, to crush his son. Why? Because he loves us. Romans 5 tells us that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, he knew when he sent his son. He knew we would kill him. But through his death, he could save us. So what happens is it's through our attempts to erase God from our lives that he could erase our debt of sin and give us life. That's grace. And Jesus is our only hope. I want you to notice that the owner's son here 
is the last chance for the tenants. Verse 6, he says, uh, finally, he sent them to them. This is it. The final word. Last chance. And if you reject Jesus, then you have no hope. And after seeing what they did to the son, there, there's kind of a, an obvious and sobering question, verse 9. Jesus asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And we, know, we already know the answer, right? He's going to do what's right. He's going he's to bring justice. He's going to come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And we read that, and we're like, like, of course. And we don't feel sorry for them at all. They brought it upon themselves, and they were awful. And this helps us understand God will judge and destroy rebellious sinners and it is just and right for Him to do that. But I know that that's a hard truth for some of us. That it's a a personal thing. But for us to question that as if God is not in the right means we don't really understand the gospel. And I think this parable is trying to help us see the story of rebellion and redemption from God's perspective. That our sin is grossly offensive to Him. That we are responsible for the evil in this world and we deserve judgment. But He's so patient. And He loves us enough to send His own Son to die for us. But if you reject God's Son... You're refusing your only hope. But even in that, God can can take that and turn it into something good. Because notice what he he quotes, verse 10. Do you see it? Look at it. He says, um, have you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our Eyes. He's actually quoting from Psalm 118, which ironically is the same psalm that they had quoted from uh, at his triumphal entry just a couple days before this. Psalm 118. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But, but, but Jesus is quoting this knowing that his victory would only come through his rejection. And so that stone that sinners would reject becomes the most important stone in the whole building. And he's laying it out for you as a choice. You can reject him and try to erase him from your life and not submit to him. Or you can receive him and make him the cornerstone You're going to be the most important thing in my life. And I joyfully submit to his authority and his rule. Let's pray. And uh, as we pray, nobody's looking around, I would just say this would be a, a moment for you to examine your own heart. Maybe as you listen to this, you realize that that Jesus died for you because you, in your sin, are guilty 
you've never sought his forgiveness and put your trust in him to save you. If that's you, then I would just invite you right now where you're at, just in the quietness of your heart, you can just pray right there in your seat. You say, I want to trust Jesus. If that's you, then you can confess your sin right now. And just say, Lord, I realize I am a sinner and I deserve your wrath. I deserve judgment. I know that. I deserve to die. But I believe that Jesus, your son, died in my place for my sin. Please forgive me and save me. And if you pray that prayer, then you have the confidence that today is a day of salvation for you. That instead of judgment, you now can have joy in submitting to him as the Lord of your life. And for those of you who would say, yeah, there's probably an area in my life that I haven't given over to him. I'm kind of holding something back. Now's the time. I say, God, you reign. I want you to have it all. I want you to get rid of any fragments of that seed of rebellion that's still in my heart. I want to submit to you and obey you. Father, you are a glorious and wonderful and loving God. Thank you that you would die for us. Thank you that you would send your son so that we could be made right before you. And so we lift you up and we say that you are worthy of our praise and we submit to you as our king. And we want to live for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.